O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 139, which along with Psalm 138 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, July the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Joshua. We've skipped forward a long way (laughs) from where we were yesterday. We were in chapter 10 yesterday, and we're chapter 23 today, verses 1 to 16. In the gospel, it's Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verses 11 to 23, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 15, verses 20, I'm sorry, 25 to 33. So yesterday we had the conquest of the five kings uh, who came out against the men of Gibeon, and Paul, oh, not Paul, Joshua and the army routed all five. Of those now, we start with a good first few words, a long time afterward, (laughs) when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years, and you've seen all that the Lord God, your God, has done to all these nations for your sake, for it's the Lord your God has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations which remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off, from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the west, which would be the Mediterranean. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. So what Joshua is saying is, I'm not going to be here for the conquest, the the complete conquest of the land, but it's your job to continue to do this work and to carry out that conquest. The Lord your God will push them back and drive them out of your sight, and you'll possess the land. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them to serve them or bow down to them. You're already in a covenant, and you should be careful to keep that covenant. Because if you don't, if you begin to mix with these others and mix their gods, then it's going to go badly for you. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. You know, one of the great truths is everything rises and falls on leadership. And you need good leaders. And so that's the problem with what comes next is in the period of the judges is, is that you get these some terrible leaders. And the same happens with the kings. But, but he says, just obey the law of the Lord. It's just that simple. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. He says, look, you know, it's not you, it's not your power, it's not your might that wins the day in these things. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. 
And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. So you've seen it. You've seen the conquest of the land. You've seen the Lord go before you. You know he promised you this land. And and so far, you've remained obedient, and he's been faithful. He's done everything that he said he would do. All you have to do is remain faithful to him, be obedient to his word. All have come to pass for you, all the good things. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things. And that, remember when we talked about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So you get curses from Mount Gerizim, blessings from Mount Ebal. And so what you get here is, he says, those are the evil things. Those curses will come upon you, the ones that were promised at the end of Deuteronomy until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. So he'll destroy you in the same way that he destroyed them, and, and so they do. He, he, they get sent into exile, and they, they no longer possess the land. They possess it sort of you know vicariously with Roman headship at the time of Jesus, and other times they do it as, vassal, uh, as a vassal state of some other foreign power. So, but, but it's their disobedience that costs them along the way. And that's the reason in the time of Ezra, he has to tell them, put away your foreign wives. You've got to do it. If you're going to possess the land and everything's going to be okay, then you've got to put the sin behind you. He says, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And we do see that, that God is less lenient with the sins of his people than he is with, with pagans, because they had to be in exile down in Egypt for 400 years before the sin of the Canaanites had filled up the land. The uh, people... He bears their sins less. And so, although you could say that, yep, he must have borne with them in the same way because they end up having to go to Babylon for 70 years because they hadn't given the land its rest, which would be about that same amount of time. Um, If you account for Sabbath years and Jubilee years and all that, then you're going to be somewhere down around 400 or a little more. So then they're expelled from the land, even though during that time there had been periods of reformation. When, when they did rid the land of all the detestable things, but they still didn't keep the Sabbath years, which is the, the prime place of obedience for God's people is to take one year and seven and let the land lie fallow. In the Matthew passage today, um, Jesus is now brought before the governor. The, they're bringing him there for the sentencing phase. So he comes to Pilate and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. It's as you say. Is what that means. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So because we're at the Passover, the chief priests and elders have to stay outside. Jesus is brought into the inner court, but they have to stay outside. The chief priests and elders do because they would be defiled by coming into Pilate's house. So apparently, again, there's this little trick of, of logic that makes no sense at all, whereby yesterday they can say, oh, the money is tainted, because it's blood money, but we paid it, but we're not tainted by having paid it. Here, they do the same thing. They're playing the same game. They're, they're pretending in their minds that they won't be defiled if they don't enter the house of Pilate, even though they know what they're doing is wicked and unjust and evil. But they're playing the game 
of being undefiled by remaining outside Pilate's house. So he, they accuse. He comes back and brings the, the Pilate does, comes back and brings the accusation, and Jesus doesn't answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed that Jesus could just stand here and say, nothing to say. I'm going to let this happen without making a defense. Now at the feast, the, gov- the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. They, so in other words, he knew that, that this whole set of charges was just bogus, that it was envy that brought them there. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They didn't really destroy him, did they? The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So they have no answer. They were just whipped into a frenzy like a mob. And remember, we saw this same thing with Jeremiah, except there was a little break in that scene with Jeremiah, and and the people looked and said, well, wait a minute. No, no, that's not the way this should go. And so they backed away from demanding it. But here, no, the power of the mob is so great that their will is going to be done, and they're not backing away, in spite of the fact nobody there could say literally there's a good reason for this. So they didn't bother responding to his question about why because it didn't matter why. In the Romans passage, Paul's finishing up, and yesterday, remember, he said, I'm gonna, I am going hope to pass through and spend a little time with you on my way to Spain because I'm going where the gospel has not yet been preached. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. Well, that doesn't go well. That's where Paul is arrested and put on trial, and ultimately he gets to Rome from there, but he doesn't pass through Rome. That's where his life ends. But he, So he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." So they owe thanks to the Jews. And and this is the funny thing about things like the Nazis and, and other parts of the Christian world who, who despise the Jews for their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. Paul looks at it completely the opposite way around. They've come to share in their spiritual blessings because of their rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion. Well, because of that, they ought to be of material service to the Jews, to repay them, to thank them. For that rejection. That's the attitude we need to take. When, therefore, I have completed this, the delivering of the blessings, and delivered to them what's been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness and the blessing of Christ. He's going to be bound in chains when he goes to Rome. 
it doesn't look like the fullness and the blessing of Christ, but it was because it was God's will. Suzanne and I have, have talked about this several times since we lost Will. And one of the, the little syllogism that, I mean, the fact that we know that he is with Christ is the main thing. And then we have to figure out, and this is a little syllogism I give you, not just for, for my benefit and my situation, but for your, any situation you happen to be in as well, even painful situations, because the, the issue is this. So we um, tend to measure good and bad, right? We tend to measure it in our own way. We tend to measure it how it affects us or how it affects those people around us. But, but if we start our thought process with God is good, then it, it starts in a good place. God is good. All right, if God is good, then the next thing is, is, is that we are God's children because of Jesus. So we've been brought into that covenant, all of us, through him. So we get him. So we are his children, and God only gives good gifts to his children. Therefore, whatever he gives me is good. I can't measure it. I can't know how it's good. Because things that seem good to me in the moment have turned bad <laughs> in, on, in different times in my life. So nothing is good in and of itself. It's good to the extent that it's fulfilling the will of God. And so it has a purpose in my life, and it can be a good purpose. And I don't know what that good is. I mean, I took a job, and I got a big raise, and, I'm, and I was making really good money, and, and I was becoming an expert, and I was making a name for myself and all that. But the man I went into business with was a crook. He defrauded the federal government, and they were 95% of our business. So he cost us that, and then I lost that job. I lost everything because we were fraud examiners. And so how do you then go to the next time that you're going to give testimony and say, I'm a fraud expert, and then the question comes, the guy you work for, didn't he commit fraud? You're an expert, and you didn't see this? How much an expert are you? I mean, you can see how that would damage your testimony a little bit and damage your credibility a little bit, even though it's not legitimate because I wasn't the one defrauded. But at the same time, it means that it's difficult for us to get a job and to recover from that because at some level, everybody believed that we participated in the fraud. We didn't benefit at all, my other partner and I. So we lost all that. And I thought that was an awful thing. I thought that was a bad thing. So I thought the job was a good thing, but, well, didn't turn out good, turned out bad, right? So it's bad. Well, then what happened? Okay, so what happened next was is that that despair, that difficulty turned me to the Lord, and ended up in my calling to ministry. And so that thing that I thought first was good turned out bad. But that bad thing then turned out good. So we can't know. We have to know that the end of all things is, is, is that there's a, God has a purpose for everything that comes into our lives. And it's a good purpose. But we can't measure it today. We can't measure it even at the end of our lives. We don't have any way to measure that. But we know that he is good, and therefore the things he gives his children are good, and therefore we should measure things based on those two thoughts. So it, it's not easy to do. I'm not making any argument that it's easy to do. It's not easy for me to do even today. But I know it's true. And that's what I fall back on is what's the truth. And so Paul here believes that he's coming in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, 
but he comes in chains so it doesn't look like he's coming in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. In other words, he's talking about the Jews who are in Jerusalem. When he say the unbelievers in Judea, he's talking about the Jews who don't believe that Jesus was the Christ. So he knows that there's a danger there. He's told that by Agabus, the prophet. But, but he knows there's a danger there. And, and so he's praying that they would be delivered from the unbelievers. He would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And the saints are the church in Jerusalem. So the unbelievers he speaks of here are the Jews and the saints is the Christian church in that area. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Well, does God come or does Paul come to the Romans in joy and refreshed in their company? Well, he was refreshed by their company because he needed that company so desperately as a prisoner. But did he come with joy? I don't know. It's going to take him a couple of years to get there because once he's arrested, he's then put on trial, and, and then the Jews make a plot to kill him. His nephew tells uh, the, the uh, governor, and so they send him out to Festus in Caesarea, and, and he, he, uh, Felix, sorry, in Caesarea, and he goes there, and he's there for two years until Felix leaves, and then Agrippa comes, and Festus takes over as governor, Agrippa comes as king, and then they send him to Caesar because he appealed to Caesar. So that's the way he ends up getting there. Now, is it with joy? Only Paul could tell us that. But I don't think Paul spent a whole lot of time, frankly, um, not being joyful and wallowing in his misery. You see no evidence of that. For instance, when you see the letter to the church at Philippi um, that he writes from his prison cell in Rome, he talks about rejoicing over and over and over, and joy is all through that. And so Paul's not concerned about his situation. Every situation becomes an opportunity to preach the gospel, which means that every situation to Paul is good because it's the way God intended it to be. He, he never, ever wavered. He didn't make the mistake that Joshua was warning the people about. He finished well. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing at all. Jesus finished well. He was the first person in all of history to finish perfectly. That's the reason I believe Moses and Elijah come to him on the Mount of Transfiguration is because they knew that they failed, and they needed a Savior no less than you need a Savior, no less than I need a Savior. It's important for us to always remember our need of a Savior. It's also important for us always to remember all the things he has done for us as Joshua commanded the people to do, so that they would have the confidence to finish the work that had been given for them to do. That's the same thing that I'm encouraging you to do, is to reflect on all that God's done for you, all the things that you've seen from him, and then finish the work you've been given to do.